Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Jeff Wurzberg with Norton Rose Fulbright, and my guest today is Bethany Corbin. And we've got a phenomenal topic, very timely, very important. And so we're going to jump right into it today. Bethany, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and, and experience in this area? Absolutely, Jeff. So happy to be here. I am a healthcare innovation and a femtech attorney. For those who aren't familiar with the term femtech, it really means women's health technology. So we're we're talking about things here that are like your period tracking apps, but much more broadly about anything that can actually be used to improve women's healthcare in the digital health space. And so I am the founder and CEO of a new company called Fem Innovation that focuses on providing strategic insights and advice to women's health founders. Well, Bethany, we are incredibly grateful for your time and for being here to discuss these issues today. Why don't we start with just a discussion on the legal landscape that's made this area, the health data privacy, so important since last summer, the summer of 2022? Yeah, so really in the summer of 2022, for for anybody who <laughs> hasn't kept up with what's been going on, right? We had the overturn of the Roe versus Wade decision. So the Supreme Court on June 24th, 2022 came out with the Dobbs decision that essentially got rid of the federal constitutional protection for abortion. And as a result, it returned abortion decisions and laws to the states. So from that, we had a lot of different states coming out with different legislation. Um, you know, we had some trigger laws that were going into effect. And what we've gotten is an abortion landscape that is heavily divided depending on which jurisdiction an individual lives in. We have at least 12 to 13 states that have completely banned abortion at this time. 32 states have banned abortion after a specific point in pregnancy, and at least 15 states are requiring an individual to, who is seeking an abortion to wait a specified period of time before obtaining that abortion. And so because of this, we're seeing a lot of movement uh, with respect to women's reproductive health, and that has caused a lot of concern with respect to reproductive health data. So when that Dobbs decision came out, I'm sure a lot of you saw there were news articles left and right talking about whether women should be deleting their period tracking apps, whether women should be even going and talking to their providers about having had an abortion. What happens if that data gets recorded into the medical record and the law enforcement officers come and try to obtain access to that data? There's been a lot of fear about how these laws will criminalize women who are having abortions, and also a lot of concern, especially amongst the provider community, because a lot of the laws out there right now are targeting and criminalizing providers who are giving abortions or facilitating access to abortions. We've also had kind of an unprecedented turn in the abortion landscape with respect to what states like Texas are doing with respect to aiding and abetting laws, creating an opportunity for citizens to kind of turn against each other and report individuals that they think have aided and abetted somebody having an abortion. There's also a wide variety of confusion and starting to get some legislation on the books here as well with respect to crossing borders to obtain reproductive health care. And what happens if somebody goes, for instance, from Texas to California to get lawful reproductive health care in California, but returns to Texas where abortion is very heavily restricted? What happens? Is that something where Texas can go and get that individual's reproductive health data from California? So this landscape is very fast changing. We're also seeing states on the other side enforcing more 
protective restrictions for abortions and abortion data and reproductive health data. Um, so states like California and Massachusetts and New York are coming out with what are known as abortion shield laws to protect that reproductive health data and to prevent that data from going back into the hands of states that may try to use it to criminalize individuals who obtained lawful health care and reproductive services. We're also starting to see cases emerge in which reproductive health data or, you know, Google searches or Facebook conversations are being used against women. Back whenever Roe versus Wade was still in effect, we had an individual in Mississippi who, you know, willingly turned over her phone to law enforcement officers once it was suspected that she had had an abortion and they were able to kind of scrape that phone and find her Google search history that showed that she had been looking up medication abortion and they were able to use that data to charge her with second degree murder. More recently, since the Dobbs decision has come out, we have a case going through in Nevada where a mother and a daughter are being accused of, you know, obtaining abortion medication to end a pregnancy. And that is being used and facilitated through Facebook messages, private Facebook messages that they exchanged. Additionally, three women in Texas were recently sued for wrongful death by a man who has claimed that they helped his ex-wife obtain medication abortion. And so the lawsuit there is really using text messages from those women. So there's a lot of different avenues through which individuals are being concerned that their data can get out and can be used to prosecute them or somebody that they know or are friends with, right, family members for re obtaining reproductive health care. You know, there's so much going on as you just laid out. And I think one of the many areas of confusion or misunderstanding at this point are those avenues, which you, you just touched on a little bit, by which law enforcement can obtain the reproductive health data of women. Could you talk a little bit more about those specifically? Yes, of course. So there's, there's a number of different ways in which law enforcement could get their hands on reproductive health data. The first way um, is, you know, kind of the most obvious way that individuals think about is directly through your healthcare provider. And, and I'm sure that we'll get much more into this shortly, but we have the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and the HIPAA has a privacy rule. A lot of individuals assume that that HIPAA privacy rule is protecting all of their health data, right, once it's in the control of a healthcare provider. However, HIPAA does have what is known as a permissible exception. It's got a list of these permissible exceptions that would allow healthcare providers to disclose data in certain instances. And one of those instances is to law enforcement officers upon you know, a valid legal request. So it is possible that law enforcement could go, you know, with a subpoena or other type of court order as well to your healthcare provider, ask for your reproductive health data and get access to the data that way. Your law enforcement officers may also be told no, right? Because it is a permissible disclosure. So part of whether or not they get that data from the healthcare providers is going to depend on your particular healthcare providers or, you know, facilities, policies, and procedures about how they handled those types of requests. The other way in which healthcare data could be turned over to law enforcement officials is through femtech apps. 
And that's what we've seen a lot of publicity on since the Dobbs decision. Women are becoming concerned that these apps, which are typically not protected by HIPAA, that they do not have stringent enough privacy and security safeguards in place that would protect their data if law enforcement came knocking. So there's a chance, right, that law enforcement could show up to your period tracking app or your fertility tracking app with a subpoena and request your data that's in that app and that they could have that data turned over and get it. The other avenue um, that individuals are starting to become more aware of is through data brokers. So a lot of the apps that individuals use in the health technology context, um, and also especially in the femtech context, are selling and compiling your data and giving it downstream or selling it downstream to data brokers in order to turn a profit. Data brokers collect a wide variety of data, they can package that data, and then they can sell that data to anyone, right? I can go to a data broker and buy data. Jeff, you could go to a data broker and buy data. Law enforcement can go to data brokers and buy data. And they can do that in a way in which they're able to access data that they would otherwise need a subpoena to obtain. And, you know, Vice recently did um, a study on this, I believe it was last year, where they showed that they were able to go and for $100 obtain access to all of this data that showed kind of whose phone was near an abortion clinic at what times and where that individual had come from and where the individual went afterwards. So the selling of data through data brokers is becoming much, much more public right now. It's becoming um, more criticized, but it is definitely still a way in which law enforcement could get access to that data. And then, you know, kind of one other way, which hasn't really been exploited at this time, but is cyber criminals, right? We know that the value of healthcare data on the black market is huge. Um, it's about $250 per medical record. And just for comparison, you know, your credit card on the black market might go for like $5.40. So already we have a huge interest um, and audience for selling medical records on the black market. Now we add the fact that reproductive health data is criminalized, you know, in some states, depending on the type of care that an individual is receiving, and that can make the value of health data skyrocket even further. So there's a possibility that we might start to see cyber criminals coming in and targeting you know, um, healthcare organizations that are providing reproductive health care or these reproductive health apps in a way we haven't seen before, you know, obtaining that data illegally and then threatening to turn that data over to law enforcement if they aren't paid a ransom. So those are kind of the, the main avenues in which law enforcement can get access to this reproductive health data. Well, you have sufficiently scared me now. But I suppose I'm totally protected by HIPAA, right? Why don't you tell me the many ways that I'm, I'm wrong? If you could give a, a brief overview of what the, the privacy landscape is today, uh, specifically for reproductive health data. Yeah, absolutely. So, so really, whenever we think about reproductive health data, what most people are thinking about is that HIPAA privacy rule. And they think that their health data is being protected by that. Um, the HIPAA privacy rule is establishing what is known as a permissible disclosure framework for protected health information that is held or used by covered entities or their business associates. So it's really more of a do not disclose unless framework that includes numerous required and permissible disclosure exceptions. The thing with HIPAA though is that it is limited in its applicability. So as I mentioned, right, HIPAA is only applying to covered entities, meaning you know, your health plans, your healthcare providers, healthcare clearinghouses, right, those types of things, or their business associates. 
it's not applying if you don't fit the definition of a covered entity or a business associate. And this is where a lot of consumers, especially users of femtech apps, get confused because most of the femtech apps that are on the market today are not being created by a healthcare provider. They're not necessarily, you know, integrated or partnered with other covered entities so that they're a business associate. So most of those femtech apps that are on the market today are not covered by HIPAA. And so you could give the same reproductive health data to your healthcare provider, right? Who's billing insurance and you know is, is subject to HIPAA and that same data to your femtech app, which is not subject to HIPAA. So HIPAA's protections don't apply just because you're giving reproductive health data. They apply to the certain entity that's obtaining that data. Um, and so that's kind of one of the biggest limitations on HIPAA right now. Um, the other limitation, right, and, and as we just briefly touched on this before, is that the privacy rule does permit covered entities to disclose protected health information to law enforcement officials without the individual's written consent or authorization in specific circumstances. So as I mentioned, right, your healthcare provider, if they are approached by a law enforcement official with a valid subpoena, could decide to turn over your PHI to that law enforcement official. Um, and, you know, the law enforcement official could use that for any type of reproductive healthcare case um, that they're building, you know, civil, criminal, anything like that. Um, they would be able to use that data. So that's kind of the landscape that we have in terms of HIPAA. Now, we do have other privacy restrictions that apply outside of the HIPAA context. The one that individuals are, you know, becoming more and more aware of now are obviously state privacy laws. So the privacy framework that we have in the U.S. is very, very much, you know, kind of a patchwork piecemeal framework in which different privacy requirements are being applied based on the specific industry or sector that you're in, right? We, and we're talking obviously about the ones that apply to healthcare today, right? But there's other health, you know, there's other privacy laws that apply to financial services industries, right? Things like that. And so we're starting because of all of these gaps that are existing in the privacy framework that we have, we're starting to see more and more states come in and try to fill those gaps with more stringent privacy protections. So we have a handful of states right now that do have privacy laws in effect. Um, California is probably the one that everybody is most familiar with and kind of has the most stringent requirements right now. And then we also have the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission is working, you know, and, and I, I see them most often kind of in the femtech context, they offer protection against unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And so we saw that most recently, for instance, with Flow. Flow is a, you know, a period tracking app in the femtech industry that's widely known, but they were collecting and using consumers' data in a way that wasn't disclosed in their privacy policy. And so the Federal Trade Commission is kind of monitoring that health tech landscape and making sure, right, that these privacy notices and privacy policies are being clear and transparent, right, that we're not deceiving consumers and how their data could be used downstream, how that data could be sold. And so we're starting to see, you know, some privacy protections and standards evolving around the FTC as well in this area. That's fascinating. Certainly, there are many, many avenues at which this issue is addressed. But specifically, recently, the Office of Civil Rights put out a notice of proposed rulemaking. Can you, can you tell us about that? 
Yes. So on April 12th of 2023, right, the OCR at the Department of Health and Human Services did issue a notice of proposed rulemaking to modify the HIPAA privacy rule in order to strengthen reproductive health care privacy. So this NPRM is actually one of the actions that's being taken by HHS in support of President Biden's executive orders that were issued right after the Dobbs decision. And so Executive Order 14076 directs HHS to actually consider what additional actions it could take to better protect sensitive health data related to reproductive health care, and also actions that they could take which would enhance provider-patient confidentiality. So the reason that HHS is really looking at strengthening the HIPAA privacy rule is for a couple of reasons. You know, this privacy rule has been in effect for a long time, you know, and it hasn't really been changed that substantially since the introduction of digital technology. But now HHS is noting, right, that the Dobbs decision is making it much more likely than ever before that someone's PHI could actually be disclosed in ways that not only harm the individual and that not only discourage openness and honesty between patients and their providers, but that also contradicts and contravenes the purpose of the HIPAA privacy rule in the first place, right, which is to protect individuals' health privacy. So since the Dobbs decision, right, as we, as we just talked about, there have been legal developments in states like the banning of abortion or passing aiding and abetting laws that are really increasing the potential for an individual's PHI to undermine access to and quality of healthcare generally. And as we know, right, some states are imposing criminal and civil liability on individuals who are obtaining abortions, right, and those clinicians who are providing the abortions. And because of that, HHS is concerned really that these types of civil or criminal investigations that are being instituted and threatened on the basis of reproductive health care, that they're going to use PHI in order to support those types of lawsuits. And so because of that, right, health data could be used for punitive non-healthcare purposes um, in ways that we haven't seen before, and it could undermine individuals' long-standing expectations of privacy that have been created by the HIPAA privacy rule. The other thing, you know, that HHS is concerned about is making sure that we don't chill the interactions between patients and providers. Um, and so if you know, an individual's reproductive health data could be used against them, that might discourage that individual from being open and honest with their healthcare provider. And that can lead, you know, to healthcare providers not having the relevant information that they need in order to make care decisions. Or it can also encourage some healthcare providers to not put that reproductive health data in the medical record. And then we've got the problem of incomplete medical records as this you know, medical record travels with the patient to future providers. So really, HHS, through this publication of the NPRM, is looking to combat medical mistrust. It's looking to ensure and reassure consumers of the safety you know, and the um, privacy of their health data, and really to kind of heighten those confidentiality and privacy protections so that we get a trust-based relationship with providers. And so there are a couple of you know, different ways that HHS is looking to do this through the NPRM. You know, the first thing I want to talk about is just that 
HHS is proposing a definition of reproductive health care in the NPRM um, because, right, that's the type of health care data that they're looking to protect with this rule. So reproductive health care at this point is being proposed as, you know, a subcategory of the existing term health care and being defined as care services or supplies that are related to the reproductive health of the individual. The more meaty part of the NPRM really comes whenever we think about the new prohibited uses and disclosures of reproductive health data. So HHS has proposed adding this new category of prohibited uses and disclosures for reproductive health care. And so specifically what HHS has proposed is to prohibit a covered entity from using or disclosing PHI where that PHI could be used for one of two circumstances, right? The first is where that PHI would be used for a criminal, civil, or administrative investigation into or a proceeding against any person in connection with seeking, obtaining, providing, or facilitating lawful reproductive health care. And then the second instance, right, is where that PHI could be used to identify a person for the purpose of initiating that type of an investigation or proceeding. So those are the two kind of prohibited uses and disclosures. Now, HHS goes a step further in that it has also proposed a rule of applicability. So HHS has narrowly tailored that prohibition that I just talked about through this rule of applicability, which is purpose-based. So the goal there, right, is to make sure that the restrictions that HHS is imposing on uses and disclosures of reproductive health data will only apply in circumstances in which the person who obtained reproductive health care did so in a lawful manner. So that prohibition, right, is only going to apply where the criminal, civil, or administrative investigation or proceeding is in connection with one of three circumstances. The first circumstance is that the reproductive health care is lawful in the state where it's provided and outside of the state where the investigation is authorized. So for example, right, let's say that we have a resident of Texas who has traveled to California for reproductive health care that is lawful in California, and that individual is sued back in Texas for having obtained that reproductive health care, right? That's an example of a situation where this rule of applicability would apply. The second instance is where reproductive health care is authorized by federal law, regardless of the state in which that health care is provided. So the most obvious example of this would be healthcare that's being provided in a state pursuant to EMTALA, which is a federal regulation that allows for emergency healthcare services. And then finally, the third is where reproductive healthcare is being provided in a state where that investigation is authorized and is permitted by the law of that state where that healthcare is provided. So here, for example, say that we have a resident of a state like California who's receiving reproductive health care in that state, um, and then the reproductive health care is lawful in that state, right, that individual would be protected. So really, when we're thinking about this NPRM um, and this rule of applicability, if you are trying to determine whether the proposed rule would permit the use or disclosure of reproductive health PHI, what you need to think about is whether or not the reproductive health care was provided in circumstances in which it was lawful. 
because if the reproductive health care was provided in unlawful circumstances, then this prohibition against use or disclosure of that data does not apply. So HHS really is not proposing a blanket protection for reproductive health data. You know, it's making sure that it is focusing on the purposes of the disclosure rather than just the type of PHI that's requested, right? So we don't have a blanket prohibition against user disclosure of reproductive health PHI. And the reason that HHS has taken that approach is because a blanket protection around this category of data would require healthcare providers to separate and silo this data from other data in the medical records that could impose costly data segmentation requirements and costs on the providers, and it would also disrupt existing healthcare delivery models. Additionally, by by using kind of this purpose-based prohibition instead of, you know, prohibiting the use and disclosure of the data in general, providers can still use that healthcare data in the reproductive healthcare context for treatment and payment purposes and other legitimate uses of that data. That's kind of the the main, one one of the main big changes that this rule proposes. The other change that the rule proposes is adding a new provision that would require a covered entity to obtain assurances from whoever is requesting that reproductive health PHI in the form of a signed and dated written statement that attests that the user disclosure would not be for a prohibited purpose. So really, HHS wants to impose an attestation requirement here that requires the request for PHI to be legitimate and not for one of those prohibited purposes that we just discussed. Now, this attestation, right, HHS isn't trying to make it burdensome, says it can be in electronic format, signed electronically, but it would not be able to be a compound attestation, right, meaning that it couldn't be combined with another document. Additionally, right, even if you know, a covered entity gets one of these attestations, if they later have reason to believe that the representations that were contained in the attestation were materially false, or that they could lead right to uses and disclosures for a prohibited purpose, then that covered entity would need to stop the disclosure of the PHI. And then finally, the other material change that's being proposed is updates to the notice of privacy practices. So under the existing privacy rule, covered entities have to provide individuals with an NPP to ensure that they are understanding how their data could be used or disclosed, along with their rights with respect to their PHI. Right now, though, the NPP is not required to provide information about the different types of prohibited uses and disclosures of PHI. Now, HHS is concerned that if we keep that current NPP requirement, that we're not actually giving individuals the adequate information and assurances that they need that their reproductive PHI will be protected. So HHS is proposing to require covered entities to really add two different types of information to the NPP. The first is that the covered entity needs to describe each of the types and uses of disclosure that's prohibited in the reproductive health context. And then second, they'll need to provide sufficient details for an individual to understand these prohibitions and that proposed attestation requirement that we just talked about. 
in terms of the comment period and you know what happens next with this rule, 60 days after publication, that is the length of the comment period. Uh, the rule was officially published April 17th, so comments are due by June 16th, 2023. And then after that, right, HHS is going to review the comments that it receives. It will determine whether or not to keep the provisions that it has proposed in the NPRM or whether to change them. And then eventually we should get a final rule that tells us what the final compliance requirements are going to be. And once that rule comes out, we are expecting a 180-day compliance timeline for covered entities. Um, HHS indicated in the NPRM that it was not seeking to extend the compliance period for this rule. So that standard 180-day compliance period is most likely what we're going to see. Bethany, thank you for that, that wonderful and, and deep dive into what's in the proposed rule. And uh, if you're correct, and it is finalized uh, in many ways as proposed in, in the current climate, uh, I have to imagine we'll see some challenges to the final rule too. Uh, so that will be, be interesting to, to follow. And, and that, I think, brings me to my, my last question for the day. We're clearly in a brave new world with lots of uncertainty. Where do we go from here? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff. As you mentioned, right, there, there is a lot of uncertainty and whatever rules that do come out, right, there is the possibility of being challenged. Uh, we're seeing a lot of abortion rules right now and, you know, new legislation being challenged. We obviously have the Mifepristone case making its way through the court system right now. So, you know, I think the reproductive health climate right now is extremely uncertain. Um, you know, it's a tricky terrain for healthcare providers to navigate at this time. You know, I think that this NPRM is a great first step towards helping to protect the healthcare data that is very sensitive and now can be used in ways in which previously was never contemplated whenever we had the privacy rule. So I'm, I'm grateful for HHS stepping up and making efforts on this front. The other thing, you know, that I think that we do still have, though, are coverage gaps. You know, the proposed rule, for instance, still only applies to those covered entities, right, and their business associates. So we still have coverage gaps in the femtech industry. And that is where, you know, a lot of consumers are most afraid of inputting their data and having their data accessible and sold downstream. So I know that, you know, HHS has a couple of other proposed rules um, that have been published as well that it's considering. So hopefully we can get some potential expansion into the health technology industry um, to add some additional restrictions on uses and disclosures of reproductive health data. But for right now, I, I think this is a great start. I think that we're going to continue to see litigation on this front and challenges, implementation, you know, <laughs> compliance concerns as these rules roll out. So I think making sure, right, that, you know, as lawyers, we are staying on top of this changing environment and that anybody who's in the healthcare industry and space, right, that they have someone to go to as this, this legal landscape is changing, someone to go to and bounce ideas off of for compliance or help them understand the new requirements. I think we're going to see a lot more integration of individuals who are kind of on the legal side and, you know, the healthcare industry as we try to work together to really understand and further the protections that are coming out. Well, you've given everyone listening a lot to think about, and there's certainly a lot of ground to cover in, in following this. And we'll certainly be looking to you and your expertise as this moves forward. Bethany, thank you so much again 
uh, for your time. If people want to know more about you and your firm and what you're doing, where, where can they find that out? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am very active on LinkedIn. You can find me, you know, the LinkedIn slash, you know, Bethany Corbin. I am also on www.feminnovation.com. Um, and you can also find me at just bethanyacorbin.com. Well, Bethany Corbin, thank you so much for providing your expertise today. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of Voices in Health Law, and we'll see you next time. And now a word from our sponsors. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and BMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health. 